across 22 countries, across different age groups, across different income strata, taking into account poverty and all of these other issues, inequality still matters. Had we had lower inequality, what our model basically says is that we would have had lower mortality. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm welcoming Edgardo Sepulveda back to The Rational View to discuss the interactions between social inequality and COVID-19. Edgardo has co-authored a paper on the topic and he's come to discuss it on the program. As always, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please hit like on your podcast app, uh, share it with your friends. And if you want to come on to our Facebook group, The Rational View uh, discussion group and chat with us. Edgardo Sepulveda has been a telecommunications economist for 25 years, the last 15 with his consulting firm in Toronto, Canada. He was born in Chile and has an MA in economics. As part of his civic policy related engagement, he also writes about electricity, inequality, COVID-19 and other issues, including at the Progressive Economics Forum. Edgardo has been the guest on a number of other energy-related podcasts, and today we're going to be talking about COVID-19. Edgardo, welcome back to The Rational View. Thank you very much, Al. I I thoroughly enjoyed our our previous episode. I'm looking forward to this one as well. I did as well. It's it's a rare honor to uh, have a second shot at The Rational View, and it's a a very uh, small club, you and Chris Kiefer so far. (laughs) Happy to be in good company, yeah, for sure. So, a COVID-19 paper from an economist. How does an economist come to write about COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, thanks for having me on again. Uh, this is one of my other uh, kind of side gigs that I do, um, you know, aside from my, my paying work, which is in telecommunications consulting. Um, and uh, so, and, you know, one of the one of the other ones is energy, of course, which you had me on in a, in a previous episode. Um, but one of my favorites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, um Basically, you know, when the pandemic hit uh, February, March of last year, um, the the saying goes, it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, when the going gets tough, economists pull out the spreadsheets. And so that's exactly (laughs) what I did. I was, I was, you know, things were slowing down for work for obvious reasons. Uh, Mm -hmm. My consulting was starting to slow down. And so I, I thought that it would be interesting to start to follow this this the whole pandemic and how it rolled out across different countries how it was affecting different populations within countries um, as a bit of a sort of you know ongoing social experiment um, and and wanted to understand what are the drivers and 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 uh, and and you know what were the risk factors basically trying to look at this from the way that I learned as an economist is to study socioeconomic phenomena. I see. Um, and so that was sort of my background. I had the time because I had the spare capacity, I had the the, the, the bandwidth because things were slow. Um, and so I joined a series of other, what I'm going to call um, honorary or, or amateur epidemiologists who kind of engaged in, in, in Twitter and trying to uh, debate Sharing the spreadsheets, sharing of graphs, sharing analysis in real time with people around the world. 
And one of the ways that this got me interested in was kind of because I have a specialty in data analysis. I've been working with data um, and benchmarking and, and a series of other things in my professional work. I thought I could I could be value. Um, and so the first uh, the first uh, successful um, aspect of that was that I called emailed uh, a series of, of people working on long-term care facilities and the analysis of um, the risks and mortality associated with long-term care facilities in Canada and around the world, uh, which, as you know, Al, was a very significant, uh, let's call it a very significant and sad uh, event of last year, Indeed. and it's an ongoing issue. Uh, in Ontario and Quebec, here in in, in you know in provinces of Canada, we've had military intervention. Um, the military have been called in to help out in in long term care facilities. Uh, a very sad uh, process, and I wanted to understand this, and I wanted to kind of add to the knowledge base. So I called, emailed uh, a series of specialists in the field um, and connected with two geriatricians um, out of Toronto, out of Mount Sinai here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we co-wrote a piece uh, on long-term care. Uh, and basically using the data analysis that I had put together, compared the, the mortality rates in Canada and put it in perspective of about 12 uh, rich countries, the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. Um, and, and sure enough, uh, from a relative perspective, um, uh, and it's not a surprise to any Canadians follow the news, Canada did particularly poorly. Um, we really underperformed. Um, and so that piece was published uh, in about October or November of last year mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, I was a co-author, uh, Samir Sinha and Nathan Stahl, who are geriatricians here at Mount Sinai in Toronto, were my co-authors. And then I wanted to go further. I wanted to understand beyond just an observation of, you know, what things were, that is to say, description, and that piece was mostly a descriptive piece, basically confirming some of the things we knew, and also setting out uh, other aspects. I wanted to understand why, right? And, you know, uh, there's a difference between description and then understanding the underlying uh, mechanism to explain, if there is an explanation, to explain uh, this, um, this, uh, these differences. Mm -hmm. Because yes, we did very poorly in Canada, but other countries didn't. And why was that? Um, is there something about our, our society? Was it a series of individual decisions? Were there systemic issues? Right? And that's one of the things that we do as social scientists is using uh, statistical inference. We try to understand whether there are underlying mechanisms that explain some of the differences across countries or whether it's all just a series of random, uh, personalized, specific, country-specific, where nothing can be explained anything and everything is, everything is random and everything's subject to uh, sort of um, national or geographic uh, determinants. I see. So that's what we try to do. Um, and at the time... Um, Already uh, uh, in Canada and elsewhere, people were talking about that in spite of kind of like the saying, you know, we're all in this together, people were saying we're not really all in this together because we were seeing already that 
um, if there was a very, uh, what is called a, a mortality gradient um, by age, that is to say that the difference between your risk of mortality, if you're say 15 to 45, is about you know one five hundredth of what it is if that if you're 80 or plus, mm-hmm. there's a very strong uh, risk gradient by age. Um, um, and that has to do with the strength of our immune system, um, that it weakens as a result of our age. And so, therefore, um, uh, COVID is much, much uh, riskier for older people, given everything else, than it is for younger people. Uh, and we see that around the world. Uh, but we were also seeing within age, we were seeing differences uh, by income, by occupation, and by a series of other uh, important uh, determinants of health. And so uh, we were seeing that in the United States, we we're seeing in Canada, um, uh, people of color, um, uh, lower income neighborhoods, etc. And so I was interested in looking to that. Um, and already in sort of June, July, and August of last year, people were talking about, um, you know, uh, what was the impact of inequality? on COVID. People were noticing that at the time, you know, the countries that uh, tended to have high mortality rates, the US, the UK, Brazil, Mexico, were countries that have traditionally been known to be relatively unequal countries measured from like an income inequality. So already people were were speculating um, in the summer of last year that, that this could be uh, one way to explain the differences in uh, performance with respect to in uh, COVID, one possible explanation was income inequality. Your paper is about the interaction between social inequality and COVID-19 mortality, effectively. That seems to be the... Yep. The, the thesis uh, that you are talking about. I understand how to measure number of deaths or mortality related to COVID-19, but how does one even measure uh, social inequality to, to, put a, to put up a graph, say? We were measuring economic inequality, um, and which is a little different than, than social inequality. And, and the economic inequality, uh, there's, you know, economists have been working on these issues for hundreds of years. Um, and it was probably about 50 or 60 years ago that an Italian economist uh, by the name of Gini, last name Gini, G-I-N-I, uh, thought of this mechanism or this this one single number that measured uh, the uh, distribution of income across the the income scale. So it's it's basically the um, the variable that we're measuring inequality is called the Gini coefficient. Um, and the Gini coefficient varies from zero, uh, which is perfect equality. So let's say in Canada's 38 million people, if everyone had exactly the same income, right? So if everyone had, I think the median income right now, I uh, let's call it $40,000. So if everyone in Canada had $40,000, Every single person, the Gini coefficient um, would be um, would be zero. Okay, so it's measuring income or wealth. Income, 
We also looked at wealth, but it, this is measuring income. Um, and then if one person uh, had all of the money <laughs> in, in Canada and everyone else had zero money, uh, the, the Gini coefficient for that particular situation would be one. So the Gini coefficient varies from zero to one. Okay. Um, and so, for example, low inequality countries such as, um, I don't know, that we include in the sample would be Slovenia, uh, Czech Republic, uh, Norway, Finland. They're in the sort of uh, between 0.25 and, and 0.3, so between 25 and 30. The high inequality countries, such as the U.S., the U.K., Chile, Mexico, etc., they're sort of between 40, like 0 0.40 and 0 0.46. So those in the 40s. And then there's a bunch of countries that are in the 30s that are sort of medium uh, inequality. And that includes Canada. Canada is about 0.31. Um, so that's... Uh, that's our, uh, from a statistical perspective, that's our variable that we're trying to test whether or not, from a statistical perspective, uh, that uh, inequality uh, is uh, significantly, is statistically significant and is a good explainer of uh, mortality uh, differences across countries. Um, and so that's the statistical method. And that's a scientific method from a socioeconomic perspective. So a, a low genie is good. A low genie is, is, has lower inequality. Yeah. It's more yeah. equal, less, less inequality. Correct. So I dream of a low genie. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so, um, just in terms of background, I mean, um, I, um, and so after this this piece was was published on on long term care, I started gathering the data and trying to look at this from a, a scientific perspective, um, and with a view to actually getting it published. And you know, as I mentioned, it was it was published just literally last week. It was accepted. Uh, we'll we'll include it in the uh, in the liner notes. Um, but you know, this is not. Uh, you know, this is not, I mean, we certainly improved what I consider there are some novel um, aspects of the paper. Uh, but, you know, this is not the first paper and it won't be the last paper looking either at uh, inequality and health generally and inequality and COVID, mm -hmm. right? So this is, as you know, Al, the scientific method, it's, it's, a, it's a series of building on top of to make sure that, you know, we, we understand uh, in the literature whether or not, you know, there's a consensus around these, uh, you know, these findings or whether there are outliers. I mean, this builds on a base of, of, of a number of papers sure. and a literature that's been going on for 25 years years. Uh, it was about 25 years ago that people started thinking about how uh, sort of non-medical uh, variables such as uh, income, uh, class, uh, race, um, and other issues were affecting health. Um, and s people started hypothesizing that, that differences in income, for example, could affect health. Um, and all of this kind of reached its sort of apex of 
of policy relevance and discussion in, in a fairly well-known um, book called The Spirit Level, uh, which you may have heard about. It's written by two English epidemiologists, um, uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, came out in, I think, 2009, 2010, which was sort of the first thing that kind of popularized the idea that inequality is actually bad for societies from a public health perspective. And whether you look at, you know, suicide rates, homicides, uh, health, obesity, a series of, of, of variables, a series of health outcomes that they showed or they wanted to show that, you know, the greater the inequality, the worst outcome that you had, whether it's on homicide rates, whether it's on obesity, whether it's on mortality, etc. Just to give you an example, um, Al, you know, right now, if you, if you look at the difference between um, life expectancy in Canada for uh, the lowest income uh, group in Canada, which is sort of the bottom 20%, you know, that's in the range of the mid 70s, like 75, for example. But if you look at the life expectancy of the highest income group, uh, it's about seven or eight years higher. Sure. But that's just directly affluence, right? That's not necessarily inequality. Well, this is a thing. This is a, this is exactly it. There are different explanations for, for these phenomena. And that's one of the things that we were trying to be able to disentangle because ultimately um, these theories have to be tested empirically. Yeah. Is, is the hypothesis that an, a society with, with, with significant inequality has um, a different effect than just a society with, you know, that number of poor people that are caused by inequality? Is there a difference between those two things? That's that's exactly it. Yes, yes. And this is a this, you know, you've hit it right on the nail, Al, the sort of much of the debate that goes uh, uh, that kind of has been going on um, in, um, you know, academics and, and practitioners who work in this area. Um, and, you know, our piece will not resolve this issue because it's it's not an unresolvable issue because it, it looks at a specific, you know, health outcome in a specific set of countries. But but um, there are two camps, right? Uh, and I want to kind of exaggerate them for a fact. One camp is, is what you're referring to, which is it really has to do with sort of the material differences uh, access to material differences from high income to lower income uh, groups, right? Access to health, um, you know, poor housing conditions, etc. Um, overcrowding, um, and, and so that's that's one uh, that's one thing. And so, you know, in from a policy perspective, if we give greater weight to that. If we want to improve those outcomes, our focus should be on poverty or on reducing poverty or on reducing lower income. Because if we can improve the material conditions of the, the low of low income groups, we will improve the health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that's one kind of um, camp, 
Um, it's obviously much more sophisticated than that, uh, more complex than that. The other camp, and again, there's a, there's a mix of both. The other camp basically says, yes, I understand that. But there are other, uh, what we, what's referred to in, in the field, uh, psychosocial um, uh, variables that also affect uh, health. Uh, and it's associated with that greater inequality tends to exacerbate social and psychological um, negative effects associated with social hierarchy, right? So the, the very idea that there's a very rich group of people uh, and a very uh, uh, poor set of people in a society in and of itself, the kinds of behaviors that that kind of social hierarchy um, the power relationships, the the sort of conspicuous consumption associated with higher income people um, leads to um, stress and anxiety uh, and and social climbing that 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 are negatively affect health and therefore lead to poor health outcomes, mm. and so. We're not trying to solve which one of those two things they are. That's not that's not what we're trying to do. But we obviously have to take this into account. What we also did in our paper was that we also included poverty or relative poverty as a potential explanatory variable in addition to inequality. So we took those into account mm-hmm. because... Um, a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the previous papers had not taken poverty into account, and it had been critiqued because um, if you don't take both into account, uh, you're possibly missing some of the key explanatory variables, and therefore you're kind of like your methodology would bias the results. Yeah, indeed, indeed, um, that makes perfect sense. I would, you know. Coming into this, I would expect poverty. You know, poverty would have a, a greater effect, uh, and inequality as a secondary effect to psychological well-being would have a lesser effect. But that's just my hypothesis, and you're the man with the data. So, what did you find? <laughs> well, we found both of them to be important, right? Um, that that that, and and this is sort of consistent with what others have found. We found that we found that inequality, without looking at poverty, was important, um, and that when we take into account poverty, uh, it's somewhat less important, but it's still statistically significant. So so you know this is in addition to the literature, um, and it adds to the literature, uh, Al, because. You know, one of the things that I looked at it from an economics perspective, and I've done work on this, and we'll link to the to the uh, to the show notes on 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 material that I've written. Um, you know, I wrote my master's um, essay way back on on inequality, um, and so I've always known uh, and followed the literature that inequality, income inequality, has negative effects. Um, beyond, as you say, beyond, let's call it, you know, the the moral, your moral perspective on inequality, whether we personally like it or not, um, there have, over the last 20 years or so, there's been significant economic um, 
work done on weather inequality beyond just our personal preferences as to whether we like it or not, whether or not it has an impact on economic performance, right? Does higher or lower inequality lead to lower or higher economic growth? What does it do with respect to education? What does it do with respect to tax avoidance Hmm. and evasion? Mm -hmm. What does it do with respect to... um, uh, intergenerational mobility. So these are, you know, as you said, this is the, this is the our toolkit within economics, right? And and th- these are well established um, literature within the economic sphere, looking at, uh, you know, how in income inequality affects a, a series of variables with respect to economic performance. What what I'm doing here is I'm stepping outside of that purely economics perspective, but using the economics analysis and toolkit to look at how income inequality affects not necessarily economic variables, but health variables. Okay. Yeah, sure. And so that's sort of one of the additional things. And it's one of the reasons that I'm a co-author, you know, looking at this from the very beginning, I realized that I'm an economist. I'm not going to do this. Uh, or understand some of the theory associated with the epidemiology component of this, which is why I got together with co-author um, um, uh, uh, an old friend and Sylvia Brooker, who's one of the co-authors, who's a, got a PhD in, in epidemiologist. So, so it's sort of in the best, in the best sort of you know tradition of multidisciplinary uh, collaboration. We've got a, an economist and an epidemiologist looking together on an aspect that has both economic, public health, and epidemiological components that are key to understand that probably cannot be understood well by one field or another. Uh, COVID is a complex economic, social, and health and political, you know, um, uh, phenomena that requires a cross or multidisciplinary um uh, set of people who are who know this material uh, or who can get to know the material using sort of the analytical background uh, of their disciplines. <clears throat> no, that seems like a great approach. Um, so you found that there is a, a strong significance with with poverty. Yes. And a slightly less strong significance with inequality. And are, were you able to... So, you know, you're trying to dis- disentangle these effects, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, and you would assume that, you know, if there was a strong effect with respect to someone's um, income, mm-hmm. uh, that in a country with a certain average income, a higher inequality would have more people below a threshold where they're going to do poorly. Yeah. So that's teased out of the, like, you're not, you're not just correcting for the average affluence of a society, but you're correcting for the number of people in poverty in that country due to the inequality. That's right. Yeah. So, um, the, um, we run hundreds of regressions and looked at hundreds of different, um, specifications uh, to try to accurately reflect, fairly reflect what we understood the data to be telling us. And um, in our full model 
which is sort of the one that are that we kind of focus on. Um, we took a series of 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 possible variables um, to understand. So. Um, just to go back to some of your earlier note about uh, your earlier show with your your colleague and friend on statistical inference, you know we we want to make sure that we fully capture and isolate the effect that we're interested in, and so we have to make sure that we we account for other you know what we call confounding variables, right, to make sure that they're not telling us the wrong story. Right. Yes. And so we have to. So in our in our in our full regression model, we we you know, if you think of it from a, a, a statistical regression on the left hand side, we had uh, we had mortality rates uh, across the countries. And we what we did is to take into account and this is one of the, sort of the novel aspects of the paper is that to take into account that. Um, you know that there's this very steep age gradient, mortality age gradient um, um, for COVID. Um, uh, previous researchers had basically either not taken into account or had added a variable of you know to try to take into account of the percentage of people over 65. What we did is a bit more sophisticated, which was that we we ran different regressions for different age groups. So we we ran one regression for the 15 to 45, another one for the or 44, 45 to 65, 65, 79, and then 80 plus. So we ran four different regressions. And so for each regression, we looked at the mortality rate across the 22 countries, uh, and we did include a fairly large sample of OECD countries, relatively equal, like sort of countries that are kind of referred to as the industrialized countries, because the hypothesis basically says this, Al. The hypothesis says, yeah, you know, we can't, you know, we have to be able to look at the rich countries where where poverty and low income is is more of an app more of a relative measure rather than an absolute measure um, you know compared to say a poverty in 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 developing countries where poverty means destitution that's not necessarily what we're referring to here in Canada or the other rich countries uh, so we're always measuring uh, what we call relative poverty okay anyway so what we took into account was we took uh, the Gini coefficient we took into account income because we know that higher income tends to have result in among other things better healthcare systems and so therefore we wanted to take that into account uh, we also took into account relative poverty, uh, as we've mentioned, and then we also wanted to try to understand um, or begin to understand what are the mechanisms uh, that are driving, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, this association between inequality and mortality. Yes, because it's one thing to be able to just do a regression. Right and say, oh yeah, there's this correlation or causation or whatever statistical regression, but we don't know understand why. Right, we don't understand why. Right, yeah. and and so uh, we we try. So that's one of the other innovative parts that we try to incorporate in the very regression model. What are some of the possible pathways? Okay, this is interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that we did was. Um, you know, the theory is one of what they call 
in terms of infectious diseases and just generally um, in in uh, what epidemiologists call the social determinants of health, which you may have heard about before, which is the idea that there are non-medical um, variables that impact on individual health and public health. Sure, um, sure. So one of the things that people talk about is, well, you know, if you think about the different stages of disease, you, you have what you call the exposure, you have the susceptibility, and then you have, you know, treatment. So, you know, from a COVID perspective is, are you exposed? Are you, do you catch the, 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 the virus? The second of all, are you of a different age or do you have some comorbidities that that once you conditional on having being infected, what are your chances of what what are your chances from an, a health outcome? Mm -hmm. And then the third component is access to health, right? Like is there an ICU, for example, in the worst case scenario, is there an ICU bed for you? Right? Like, does the, does the society have an ICU bed for you or are you in a developing country where there is no ICU bed and you're, you're in very bad situation? So we try to model those three components, explaining how it is that, um, you know, th this association between inequality and mortality could be explained beyond just looking at it from a purely quantitative perspective. We wanted to kind of apply the theory of it and try to understand that. So we looked at we looked at we looked at three things. We looked at um, the availability of being able to work from home, right? So one of the things that everyone talked about is that um, uh, people in managerial consulting uh, work were able to work from home. And a lot of service people were not able to work from home mm -hmm. and had to go in and therefore raised, uh, face a higher probability of infection. I see. Um, so that was one variable that we looked at. Another variable that we looked at was whether or not, uh, how, what percentage of people over 80 were in long-term care facilities. Okay. Right? So... Um, if there are and and there are big differences there are there are social and economic very large differences between the way in which different countries um, deal with elder care and whether or not um, there is um, an an emphasis on aging at home um, versus uh, or with with family versus um, um, being in a long-term care facility. Hmm. Um, you know, the differences are in some countries, the difference between the ratio of people in long-term care facilities and not is three, four, five, six times as the difference. Hmm. Um, Canada is one of the countries from a comparative perspective that has quite a number of people in long-term care facilities. And if we think that long-term care facilities, as we know, based on the past literature, were hotspots. Yes. Therefore, one of the reasons that, so the more people that you have in long-term care facilities, as a proportion of your population, the more likely you are to be exposed. Sure. Yeah, they did really poorly. That's right. And we did very poorly. It, people, I mean, long-term care facilities did very poorly across the world. So it just goes almost logical that the more the higher proportion of your population that is in long-term care homes will also drive 
uh, mortality. And taking that factor into account actually strengthened our results on inequality because without taking that factor into account, confounding factor, uh, we weren't getting the same results. And the last part was what we call the survival rates, which is trying to take into account the sort of the susceptibility and um, susceptibility and access uh, as a as a proxy, but anyway, so that's our that's our our that's our full model. Try to take into account. There's more work to be done. Uh, better granular data has to be taken into account. All of our data was based on group data. It wasn't on individual outcomes because. Um, in terms of the quality of the data, um, very few countries even now are looking at data uh, from a socioeconomic perspective. We know people's age, gender, sometimes race when they pass from COVID, but we usually don't know their income. Right, mm -hmm. and so and so, uh, or their educational attainment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, you know, at this point, we're working at the population yeah, group level. We're not data. talking at the individual level, right? We're looking at aggregate data, and there are some limitations associated with that. The interesting part is that this is an ongoing process, and as more data comes through, we'll be able to kind of dig into the data and come up with even stronger results, you know, if they hold um, more stronger predictive results. But one of the reasons I did this is, you know, um, if we want to avoid the worst outcomes of a future pandemic, the policy prescription is clear, right? Is to reduce inequality. Is But, you know, that is one component. There are other components of why we think that, you know, inequality has negative um, effects on economic performance. And now, you know, the the literature is, is suggesting that it also has negative performances with respect to pandemic performance. So yet another kind of like another, you know, in the ledger <laughs> of, of, you know, the, the performance impacts of inequality is another one on the negative side uh, that we can add to some of the others that have already been understood for decades. So I've looked at your results and I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here because obviously uh, you've also seen my episode with uh, Jeremy Balka uh, on the statistics and the replication failures in the social sciences. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the driving things of this are, are a lot of people publishing low, uh, low significance results, uh, which could come about through chance. And in your analysis, you've taken on these confounding variables and done regressions on each of them, I assume. And then you're fitting the residual uh, to, to a Gini coefficient to find the residual correlation. And that means that your error bars get big. So what what is the statistical significance of this result? Is it is it three sigma? Is it five sigma? You know how are, are how certain are you that the null hypothesis is ruled out in this case? Right, right, yeah. I mean that's a, and that's exactly that's an excellent question. That's exactly the kind of 
um, exactly the kind of process that we had to go through. We had uh, we went through two rounds of of refereeing, uh, one of which was a particularly particularly aggressive statistician who asked us these very same set of questions. So we went through this process. Oh, so you're prepared. This is good. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't me. It, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we went through a, a peer review process of. Uh, three three referees. Um, one of them was a generalist. I mean, we don't know. It was a it was a double blind, right? So we didn't. They don't mm -hmm. know us. We sure. didn't know them. Uh, and one of them was a generalist. Uh, uh, one of them was a statistician, clearly. Uh, and then one of them was a theoretician, right? And and they went at us pretty hard. Um, and so the, the 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 end result, and in a good way. I mean, this is a stronger piece as a result of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, we actually, as a result of both of their comments from the theoretician and from the statistician, um, we, we changed our model and we scaled back from our earlier uh, much stronger language and much more definitive models to the most conservative uh, model possible. Um, and and so what you're seeing here is um, uh, the most robust conservative estimate. Um, the earlier drafts had much stronger models, um, but the the so I am I convinced? Yes, I am convinced because we went through this uh, very robust peer review process. Um, uh, we use relatively sophisticated statistical methods, uh, and we ran, uh, you know, there's a whole, uh, what's it called? Uh, I guess it's section 3.1, which is called Robustness, Sensitivities, and Limitations, where we kind of go through the process and probably ran hundreds of regressions to make sure that our results were robust, that we were using the most conservative and replicable models possible. Um, and that we were taking into account all those processes associated with some of the problems associated with time series cross-sectional data. So, you know, uh, without getting too technical, there, there's the whole idea of correlation, right? Where one, one period is associated with the other. There's a problem of scedasticity, which is that when you look at cross-sectional data, the errors are not always um, uniform. A series of data uh, processes, and so what we're presenting and what ultimately was accepted was a highly conservative, extremely robust specification that still ended up with um, significance for the um, the main variable, which is the Gini coefficient, um, from 0 0.1, a p of 0 0.1 to 0 .2, to 1 percent, and for some of the older age groups at 10 percent. So that's ultimately our um, our results. And yeah, I'm 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 quite confident, given uh, the four month process that we went through in terms of peer review, made it a much stronger. Uh, a more solid um, uh, piece that uh, compared to the earlier ones where we kind of overreached a bit, uh, we kind of scaled it down and kind of um, focused on what we considered to be the, the, the core, most conservative, most robust specification, which still uh, produced the kinds of results 
um, that uh, that are worthy of publication. Excellent, um, and that you know. It's a difficult process to get any paper through peer review to get it published because you you should be challenged and uh, you should be forced to look at all these things and then they always uh, make you go back to the drawing board and, <laughs> and work through it. Indeed, yes. No, no, no. We we literally went uh, to uh, not quite a drawing board, but yeah, close. I think this is this is interesting uh, to to discover. Uh, you know, to to try to tease out some of the factors that influence health. Um, responses in populations and one definitely would expect poverty to be a driver in in outcomes and maybe it's more surprising that inequality uh on its own is a driver uh but maybe not when you consider the psychology of unequal society you know if, if you feel like you are doing well amongst your peers um you have less stress than if you feel like you are uh, falling behind uh a, a visible peer group well that's right i mean you think about about, you know the political explanations of of you know uh, of the rise of of Trump, for example, in the United States. A lot of it has to do with this this uh, you know the political explanation is this feeling of falling behind, right? Whether or not your 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 sort of objective material reality may or may not be different, or it's actually in the grand scheme of things, not that bad, but the feeling of falling behind leads to all kinds of negative political, social, and health outcomes. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting insight that I found interesting. Um, again, we're not, we're not we're not trying to say that that is what is explaining this. Um, uh, but what we're saying is that, you know, we're not rejecting it either. It could be a combination of that or the differences in material, objective material uh, access, right? In terms of the idea of crowded housing, having to, you know, not having a car and therefore having to deal with transit during a pandemic, all those kinds of things. We're not exactly sure. Uh, and things will change as the pandemic wears on. Vaccination is going to be an important aspect as well. All of our data uh, is, is it's a, of the studies that have come out. You know, our data set was the longest period. We had nine months of data. A lot of the other researchers had three or four months or some even had weeks. We had nine months of data and we made sure that we stopped our data collection before vaccination took into account. So all of this is pre-vaccination mm -hmm. um, so that you're making sure that you're not mixing, commingling the effect of vaccination uh, on the actual effect of mortality. I think another um, important correlation with COVID and inequality uh, that we're seeing right now and, and then we're going to feel the effects of in a, in a much stronger way is the mass exodus of women from the workforce uh, to provide home care to their children. This is, I think, uh, really kicked back a lot of our progress in inequality um, Quite quite a ways. It seems like the impact uh, has fallen uh, very unequally, um, and main, mainly back into traditional roles in, in childcare and uh, work. Have you have you noticed anything of that? Do you have data on, on anything like that? Have you looked at it? Um, yeah, I mean, a series of a series of economists here in Canada and elsewhere have kind of uh, talked about you know. Um, uh, I think the 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 buzzword is uh, a she session. <laughs> that is to say that you know that that the effects of this um, 
of of you know the societal response to covid has fallen disproportionately on women um and so i have seen some of that we'll see how much of that um you know once the pandemic um goes away fingers crossed um you know whether that persists and 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 what are the long-term effects of that so so we didn't look at uh in our study we didn't look at any um behavioral responses to covid all of all of our data is like historical pre-pandemic data so it's all driven by structural causes so for example i know a lot of people looked at you know what were the you know how did public health effects like the lockdown mass mandates etc cetera, etc cetera, how that affected uh, mortality we didn't do that right because our that's not we didn't take that into account sure um we didn't take into account any behavioral events all of our were pre-pandemic uh, historical debate because one of the things that uh, as as you'll probably know from you know from uh, the um your other episode and any kind of statistical is that uh when you throw in contemporaneous uh if, uh variables into uh any kind of statistical method you 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 start to have to deal with endogeneity right which is the idea that what is driving what is 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 mortality driving public health responses or is public health responses driving mortality right for example a lot of people talked about how you know stronger public health measures tended to be associated with high mortality but so and and we're drawing the wrong conclusion that <laughs> public health measures led to mortality when in fact it's it was a response, response to mortality yes. is that the stronger the stronger a, a, a bigger, stronger mortality effect in countries led to stronger public health measures, not the other way around. But that is in and of it's itself a, a measurement <laughs> issue that we, that's right, that's right. It's endogeneity, it's all, you know, one leading to another and you don't know. So anyway, we want to avoid that and all of our data, so all our work from home data, our long-term care, all of our data is, is historical that is impacting the effect of mortality. But the important thing is this. I mean, one of the strengths of this of this and other literature that came out is that, you know, the public health measures, lockdowns, mass mandates, et cetera, we didn't even have to take into account and we still were able to explain mortality to a great extent. Yeah, it's surprising that there is an effect that, that holds up after all of those different approaches. Uh, and you have to average so much to get there. That's right. You have to do that. But in the end, what you're trying to understand, and by the way, when I'm, the, other, the other thing I'm going to do, um, Al, is I'm going to link um, to a story that came out uh, last month in The Economist uh, magazine, a uh, conservative magazine that usually doesn't talk about inequality, but basically covered this specific topic and cited some of the um, papers that had previously come out that we had used as part of our literature review um, to bad our paper only just got out so we couldn't have get cited in the economist but they go through the idea that is there one thing or is there a number of things that kind of like when you take 
all of these issues in account and the thousands of individual decisions at the public health, political, you know, m- you know, mass mandates, school closings, when you take all those small little individual things into account, but beyond that, you're dealing with bigger structural issues that drive health. And that's one of the things we're trying to do. We're not trying to answer that this matters every single time and all the time. But what we're saying is that when you when you take even when you even can ignore public health issues and all those other things, not that they're not important, but you take those into account, what we're saying is that after all of that, across 22 countries, across different age groups, across different income strata, taking into account poverty and all of these other issues, inequality still matters. Mm-hmm. And and so that is not an insignificant finding, that there are structural things that we can kind of mess around at the margins with public health measures, but there's some systemic issues that are going to show and, and come to the forefront when you get this kind of shock. So you basically you have the structure of the way in which society's you know structured, and then you shock that, and what you're going to get is the same result more or less, regardless of what you can do to kind of band-aid it on top, because you have these deep structural issues, whether it's gender, whether it's income, whether it's race, we focus on income inequality. Um, and so, um, you know, we were pleased with the findings. It's 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 uh, pleased from a scientific perspective. It's not a great finding because, um, you know, uh, in a sense, um, some of these deaths were preventable from a structural perspective. Had we had lower inequality, what our model basically says is that we would have had lower mortality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's an important result. I mean, I, I'm I'm on board with you that social inequality is something that we need to break down. I, it's been growing. If, if you've listened to my income inequality podcast, one of my earlier ones, you know, where I looked at this and I analyzed this, it's been growing since the 70s. Uh, and it's right now at the highest point it's it's ever been in, you know, in over 100 years um, in North American society, at least. I think it's something that definitely is leading to Trump. It's leading to a breakdown of democracy. It's leading to a a lot of unrest. I mean, this is this is this is where societies fall apart at this level of inequality. So um, good to to be able to highlight this, and uh, it's you know worthwhile to to bring up another potential. Um, downside to social inequality if you need more to address it uh, I, I'm not sure if, if if this is you know what we what we need to address it we should be addressing it anyways <laughs> yeah as if we need another as if we need another reason this is another yeah. one yeah yeah for sure so I think we're getting towards the end of our, our time scale here and it's it's been great talking to you again Edgardo uh, I had a lot of fun digging through your your paper with you and and uh, Definitely uh, impressed with the uh, with the breadth of your with your of your work, uh, electricity and COVID. Uh, what's next for <laughs> for you? Well, I mean, if things go well, I, I this is a this is a an international work. Um, you know, I I want to do some more Canada specific work on social determinants of health, looking at inequality, looking at in the same way that you can look at this 
across countries. You can also kind of look at it across provinces. And uh, so, yeah. Oh, by the way, and before I head off, I wanted to also, um, uh, like, again, I gave a shout out to my co-author and Sylvia Brooker. Um, but we received some great statistical and technical assistance from from uh, a PhD uh, uh, economic student uh, at my old alma mater at Queen's University, um, uh, Daniel Teeter, who helped us out with uh, the relatively sophisticated uh, and robust uh, statistical methodology uh, and actual number crunching um, that uh, I that I didn't want to have to learn my my econometrics or relearn my econometrics from 25 years ago. <laughs> so so it was a, a truly team effort. Um, and um, again, I want to make sure that that I uh, that I gave credit to both Anne Sylvia and to Daniel um, for you know helping put out you know this this piece that I'm very pleased to be able to talk to you about Al. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, I'm starting a new a new thing for my guests. I'm going to be sending everybody a, a t-shirt for coming on the show. Uh, so I'll be firing off a, a Rational View t-shirt to you. And thanks for, for spending the time to come on the show, Edgardo. Oh, excellent. I was just going to ask you about that t-shirt and how I could get one. Now you've answered my question. Yeah. Great. Thanks again, Al. Looking forward to wearing it. I'll give you, I'll send you my, my size. And then, uh, uh, again, very, uh, thank you again for the second invite. Uh, I enjoyed this and, uh, looking forward to some more. I um, appreciate it very much. Thank you. <laughs>